Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Good morning. How are we doing today, Summit family? <laughs> Some people are more excited than others. I'm glad you're excited. It's great to see you all. Glad you're here. My name is Mel Massingale. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit, and I just want to say welcome. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, Thank you for those of you that are here in the room. Thank you for those of you that are watching online, no matter where you may be or how you may be joining us. We're so grateful that you've taken time out of your day to allow us to be a part of it. We pray that God blesses you. So thank you again for worshiping with us. Um, I've been gone for the last few weeks. I took some time off, just some personal time, and I appreciate those of you that were concerned about me, that reached out and thought something was wrong. Uh, I was just taking some time off, and I want to not only encourage you to guard your emotional, spiritual, and physical health, but I want to do the same thing as well. And, uh, and this was the longest amount of time I've taken off since I've pastored the church here. And I realized after I got into it how badly I needed it. And so I'm so grateful for our team uh, who did an, an incredible job while I was away. Um, they did teacher appreciation while I was out. They did uh, a six for six last weekend, which was awesome. Uh, Pastor Todd preached a few weeks ago on worry. Um, Pastor Kim, my wife, preached a couple weeks ago on contempt. Uh, and they did a wonderful job with the series Killing What's Killing You as we finish that up. And so uh, today we're starting a new series. Before we get into that, though, one of the things that I was praying about uh, while I was away was, God, how do we see you move in miraculous ways? And one of the things I really settled on was, I think what we need is a gigantic oversized TV on the stage. And if we get this, then the power of God can really move in our services So I'm expecting big things today, I'm just saying. So, uh, no, we're we're doing this, just so you know, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. Uh, We feel like this is going to help our online audience. So as people are watching online, you'll see during the service today, we're going to have the stuff for you in the room, the stuff that's on the center screen is going to be on this screen. So if you're watching online, you're going to be able to see the scripture up here a little longer. It's going to be a better experience for them. And so we're trying some things out and experimenting. So that's why we have this today. Um, We're starting a new series called uh, Asking for a friend, and we did this series uh, last year. And last year, we covered topics like homosexuality. We talked about um, just sexual, what the Bible calls sexual immorality. We talked about uh, what does the Bible say about people living together before they're married and premarital sex. And so we talked about that. We talked about uh, answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And some of those questions have been asked already, and I would refer you back to last year. I would go back and, uh, and get caught up on that because we're not going to re-answer some of those questions. Uh, but I want to encourage you, if you want to be a part of the series and you'd like to ask some questions, um, you can text your question. You can text asking for, asking the number four, to the number 94000. When you do that, you're going to be able to ask your question. And we have had some doozy so far. So um, you keep asking your questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people who ask questions. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, one of the questions we got this week, uh, the person asked, they said, let me, I want to read it, make sure I get it. Could you explain 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35 and 1 Timothy 3? And it was cut off, so I didn't see the whole thing, but I think I know where they were going with it. And basically what they're saying is, um, can you explain why we allow women to be in ministry? So the question we're going to look at today is, is it biblical for women to be pastors? And let me say right from the start, there is some division about whether women should be pastors or not. If you've been around Summit at all, you probably know where we stand on this because uh, Pastor Steph was up here today. Uh, Pastor Kim preached a few weeks ago. So uh, is it biblical for women to be pastors? And to me, the answer is yes. Thank you for coming to Summit today. God bless you. I hope you have a great week. Some of you are like, yes, we'll go with that. Yes. We're going to beat uh, the other churches to the Sizzler today. No, no such luck. I'm sorry. I haven't preached in three weeks, so today is going to be like an hour and, you know, 50 minutes. So, um, no, I want you to know something. There are differences in theology when it comes to this topic. This, for me, is not a topic that I'm willing to die on a hill for. Um, there are things that are central and things that are peripheral. To me, this is more of a peripheral issue. So if there's a church that disagrees with us and says, nope, women should not be pastors— 
uh, I don't disassociate with that church. As long as that church believes Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he is the son of God, that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God, um, then we're probably okay. So there are churches in our community that don't believe women can be pastors, and I'm all right with that. I can still love them and be in relationship with them, and we're all going to the same heaven, okay? But what it means is there's a difference. Isn't it great that we can have a difference with somebody and still love them? Oh. <laughs> That took a little too long, by the way. <laughs> Some of you are. Yeah, it's awesome. We love it. <laughs> I had to coerce you into that one. So understand this. When we talk about this from our perspective, we are not saying we are right and they are wrong. What we're saying is this is the way we interpret it. And we think we're right, but if we're wrong, that's okay. Um, and that makes people frustrated sometimes when we talk about things in that way, but there's only a few things that I can tell you emphatically that I know for sure, and this is one of those things that I believe this. I have conviction about women as pastors and women in, in biblical leadership, um, but I, what I want to do today is just unpack it and talk about it. So if you have more questions about this when we're done, because this is not a deep dive. This is not an exhaustive study. This is a 101. This is a high-level overview, and we're going to try to give some facts and some reasons behind why we believe what we believe. So uh, much of the opposition behind women in leadership and women as pastors are rooted in two key verses, two key passages, and I want to read those to you. The first is 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Verse 34, and Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he says, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. This seems pretty emphatic, doesn't it? It seems pretty direct. There's no other way to really interpret it other than what it says. Um, and there's some of you that, uh, that some men that are watching this online or in the room that you are thinking, I just found a life verse. I just found my favorite passage of scripture I'm gonna get it tattooed on my arm right here. That way when my wife or girlfriend says something, I can just go, uh-uh, right there, right? I wouldn't do that yet, okay? The other passage is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And again, this is another verse that guys are like, all right, I mean, I love the Bible, right? I've been saying for years. Um, but this is the problem in, in interpreting Scripture this way is that we ignore context. We ignore what else is going on in the verse. We ignore what else is going on in the culture. And so that's what I want to do. I want to look at that a little bit. So a couple things I want to point out as we wade into this today is, number one, in the biblical era, women were regarded very literally as second-class citizens. Um, women were largely uneducated. Uh, women, for the most part, were not allowed to own property. Um, women's testimony was not counted in legal affairs, so they were, they were considered unreliable. Um, they were regarded very much like children are today, that children are subservient to their parents. This is the way women were viewed in biblical times. Um, and so, so this is part of the context of what we're looking at. Um, the fact that, that they were uneducated, they probably weren't going to be put in positions to teach if they didn't have the education to be able to teach. Um, they weren't afforded those opportunities or given those opportunities. So I want you to understand a little bit of the context as we begin to wade into this. Uh, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. But understand, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, this is kind of wrapping up Paul talking to the church of, in Corinth about how to handle itself in biblical, in worship services. So in corporate worship gatherings, what should be happening, what should not be happening. And so in 12, 13, 14, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about prophecy. He's talking about um, messages in tongues and interpretations and all these kind of things that can happen in a corporate worship setting. Uh, in chapter 13, then, he's talking about love. This is what you've heard at weddings where they say love is patient, love is kind. This is 1 Corinthians 13, um, and he sandwiches it right in between because he's saying, hey, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, vitriol, even in the church, about how we handle this stuff and what it looks like. So in everything, do it in love. And then he comes back to the spiritual gifts in 14. And so he's talking about what to do and what not to do. And this is where we get uh, into 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. And he says this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak. Um, <laughs> now, this, this last verse, verse 35, it is a, it's kind of funny to me that um, we look at it in today's context and it feels so condescending to say, women, just keep your mouth shut. And if you got any questions about what the grown-ups are talking about, you ask your husband when you get home. He'll, he'll explain it to you, right? But again, let's put it in their context. In their context, uh, women were largely uneducated. So what was happening in services and churches, and this is our best guess, is that there was conversations happening that women were going, babe, babe what is he talking about? Like, what does that even mean? When he said this, what is, and, and, there were these kind of crosstalk happening in the context of church, and that was a problem. And so that's one of the reasons we believe Paul was saying, hey, save it for when you get home. Because um, you could imagine if we're in the room and I'm preaching, and all of a sudden this crosstalk started happening in the room, and, and people were going, I don't even know what he's talking about. Have you ever been to a movie? Um, I went and saw the movie uh, Tenet the other night. And uh, if you haven't seen this movie, it's going to break your brain if you go see it. It's hard to follow and understand. And I am a person, I like total silence when I'm watching a movie. Like, I don't even want to, if I'm sitting at the house with my girls and we're watching a movie and they're talking, I get a little frustrated because I'm like, you got to honor the movie, right? Like, just watch the movie. And so when people are talking in the movie theaters, it gets a little irritating for me. But there was a couple times during that movie I wanted to lean over and go, what is happening here, Right? But that's so irritating when you're in a movie theater and that happens and somebody's going, what is going, oh, don't you, don't go in there, girl, don't do that, right? And they're talking to the screen. It's like, come on. And this is what was going on in the church at Corinth, that people were talking and you could imagine how frustrating that would be, how, how distracting it could be. So Paul speaks to that. Let me go back up. What he says here is, uh, the woman should keep silent in churches. And again, this seems very direct and very straightforward. The word for keep silent here in the, the Greek is sigao. And sigao means what you'd expect it to mean, to keep silent, to cover up, uh, to conceal. And so what Paul is saying, literally, is he's saying, hey, ladies, conceal it, cover it up, be quiet during the service. Now, again, it seems to be very straightforward, but when we look at it in context, the same word, sigao, is used several times in the same passage for different applications. It's used in the application of prophecy. Hey, there are times that someone has a word of prophecy that they should conceal it, that they should be silent, they should hold on to it. There are times that someone has a word of, um, of tongues, the gift of tongues for the body, and, and they get, but they're supposed to conceal it. They're supposed to sigao. That's what they're supposed to do. And so when we look at it, in context, we should understand that it's not saying uh, that we should never prophesy, sigao, never ever do this in church. It's not saying we should never have a message in tongues. And in the same way that it's saying that, it's also not saying women should never talk in church. What it's saying is there are selective times that we need to be judicious about how we talk. There are times that we need to be selective and judicious about bringing a prophetic word to the body. There are times that we need to be judicious, judicious about the, the message in tongue that we bring to the body. And in the same way, it's saying, women, there should be times we should be judicious about how we speak out in church and what it looks like. So it's, to me, it's not a prohibition against women ever speaking. It's against women speaking up and kind of disrupting things and interrupting things. In fact, um, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about women prophesying and giving messages in tongues. And so it's clear to me that Paul is not prohibiting women from speaking in church, because if he was, literally, in the earlier part of this letter, because this is one letter to the Corinthian church. So in the first part of this letter, he says, hey, women are prophesying and women are speaking in church. And then a little later he goes, but on second thought, women shouldn't speak in church. Like, you would think something was wrong with Paul. He's schizophrenic. Something's wrong, right? But that's not the case. But when we look at this in context, we understand, okay, there's more going on than simply women should be quiet. Um, and, and I want to compare it to this. Have you ever been with someone and they took a phone call? And they said, hang on just a second. And they stood there and talked on the phone while you were waiting. And in that moment, you heard half the conversation. You heard everything that they said to the other person on the line. Now, depending on what they said, their conversation could be very different things, right? Uh, depending on what you're hearing, it could 
mean they are saying lots of different things. So after they get a phone, you go, is everything okay? Yeah, they were calling and they asked about. And then in that moment, you go, oh, now I understand the conversation. So when we look at the epistles, when we look at what was written to churches, um, we have to understand that in many ways we're seeing one side of the conversation. We're not seeing the whole conversation. And there are going to be some things that we just don't understand. There are going to be some things that leave some gaps in our understanding. And that's got to be okay because we don't know specifically what was going on that Paul said, hey, women need to be silent in this context. Uh, we can surmise, we can guess, but we don't know emphatically. Uh, just like we don't know when Paul said, I had a thorn in the flesh, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. He never says, this is what's going on emphatically. Um, and so there's some gaps that we just have to go, I don't know, but I'm going to trust and I want to look at this in context as best I can to have a, a good level of understanding. If we move on uh, to, to verse 33, I want to go back to verse 33. If you read it in the English Standard Version, which we read earlier, it says this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. And then it goes on to say, As in all the churches of the saints, comma, the women should keep silent in churches, period. Now, this would be a very direct statement, right? That God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. And then it makes a new statement. And it seems to imply that in all churches, women should stay silent. But let's read it from a different point of view, a different version, a different interpretation. This is the New American Standard Bible. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, comma, as in all the churches of the saints, period. So what he's saying is not that in all the churches of the saints, women should stay silent. What he's saying is, is God is a God of peace, not of confusion, in all the churches of the saints, does that make sense? And so what happens is it seems like not a big deal. It's a period instead of a comma. It's a comma instead of a period. What difference does it make? But it makes a big difference how we apply this to our lives and how we understand the scripture. So most interpretations say that God is the God of peace, not of confusion, as in all churches of the saints. That's the way it's normally interpreted. So what we have to do as believers is be biblically literate enough that we can push into Scripture a little bit to try to understand what's really going on. Try to understand the context and not just rely on people like me to tell you. Um, that's why it's important for you to be mature enough to feed yourself and understand what's really going on. So again, that was not an exhaustive study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, but, but that was the overview. Let me look now at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, Okay, 1 Timothy was written to Timothy, uh, but it was probably written to Timothy while he was leading in Ephesus. Uh, so it was geared toward Ephesian believers and people there. Now, one of the things you need to know about the, the city of Ephesus, uh, historically, it's, it's located in, in modern-day Turkey now. But Ephesus was an important city in the Roman Empire um, because in Ephesus was the Temple of Diana, or Artemis. And Artemis was an important figure in the Greek pantheon. Uh, she was the, the primary female goddess. And in fact, excuse me, in fact, if you worshipped at the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, it was an incredible uh, building and temple. If you worshipped there, it was female-dominant, female-led worship. Um, they deified women. So basically, women were preeminent and men were subservient in that culture. And this was such a large cult that literally every spring, people from hundreds of thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire, which was most of the known world at that time, would flock to Ephesus for the celebration of Diana or Artemis. And they would come and worship her together. And they would worship the fact that women were superior to men. What happened in, in Greek culture many times is this idea of syncretism. And so what would happen is they would take what they knew and they would adopt new faith ideas along with it. Um, and so what would happen is as Christians began to come into Ephesus and the gospel began to spread, the people that were Artemis worshipers would hear the gospel and they would go, man, that's a pretty good idea. We like this. You know what? We're just going to merge this together. We're going to mush it together and 
we're gonna take the best of what we like here and the best of what we like here and we're gonna create something new. That's basically what they would do. Um, and so I believe that when we're looking at 1 Timothy here specifically, what, what Paul is speaking to is not a broad statement about women as much as it is a specific statement about what is going on in that cultural context. So let me read 1 Timothy. We're going to start in verse 8, and it says this. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So this is a pretty good start, right? Men should be prayerful, they should worship, they should get along with each other. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, some of you are going, wait a second, I thought we were talking about women in leadership. We're getting there, but I want you to understand the context. So what Paul is saying here, because um, this, is, this is the thing, I know churches that apply this literally. They will say, literally, women cannot braid your hair. So ladies, if you braided your hair today, you're in big trouble, right? Women, you should not wear jewelry, you should not wear earrings, you should not wear, there are churches and denominations that apply it that way. I don't believe that was Paul's intent with this passage. What we understand about the, uh, the, the worship of Diana was that they elevated women and that women took great pleasure in the way they looked. And there's nothing wrong with being proud of the way you look. But what Paul is talking to the church about is there's a problem with elevating the way I look above everything else. I value myself based on how I'm perceived by others. And so he's saying, don't be concerned about how... how um, your hair is braided or what kind of jewelry you're wearing or what kind of handbag you have. He said those things are secondary. What you should be more concerned with is what's going on in your heart and what are the good works that are being produced from your life. And he said the problem is we're vain and we're concerned with what people see and not what people don't see. Aren't you grateful that we don't have to worry about that stuff today? We are in a selfie culture that we love to post pictures of ourselves and get likes and it gives us affirmation, all those kind of things. And I think if Paul was here today, he would say the same thing to us. Stop being so concerned with what you look like and be more concerned with what's going on in your heart. So he's speaking to this issue of, um, of this cultural this cultural encroachment on the gospel. He goes on in verse 11 to say this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And I didn't say this in the earlier services. When he says this, it's the same uh, idea that, um, that, that people that have leisure use that leisure to learn. And so it's, this is a revolutionary idea for Paul to say that women should learn. Because women were not educated in this time. So this is a big deal for him to say they should learn. So they should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So let me start with the last two verses here, verse 13 and 14. Uh, in Jewish culture, the first was really important. That's why the firstborn had the, fir the birthright. That's why the, the firstborn had uh, the, the better rights, they had the bigger portion, all these kind of things. Uh, that's why when it comes to the tithe and we talk about first fruits, the first is really, really important to God. Um, and so the first is important in, in, in Jewish culture. And so he brings this up. And again, this is almost like rhetoric geared toward the, uh, the, the Artemis worship. But he says, hey, uh, Adam was formed first. And then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he's kind of blaming it on the woman here. But we know in Paul's later writings, the other things he's written, that he doesn't blame the woman. He blames Adam. And so, again, he's not schizophrenic, but I believe this is a specific argument for a specific moment in time. So what he says here is, uh, in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, this is what you're going to see in a moment. He does allow women to exercise authority over a man in different contexts. So what is going on here that he's speaking to that? And I think he's speaking to the culture, uh, the common culture in Ephesus that was, again, encroaching on the, the gospel culture in the church. That he was saying, hey, uh, any time, so let me just say this for the record. Anytime we think that we are better than someone else, 
because we are a man and they're a woman, or I'm white and they're black, or, or I'm whatever and they're whatever, we are wrong, period. So it's wrong for men to do that and say men are superior and women, because men love to throw out jokes about women drivers and all kinds of stuff like that, right? But at the end of the day, um, if we think we're superior just by, on basis of us being a man, we're wrong. And I would say the other thing is true too. What Paul was trying to say is just because you're a woman does not mean you're superior. In fact, what we see is that there is none that is superior in the body of Christ. We'll come to that in a moment. And so I want you to know that, that Paul wasn't trying to uh, put women in their place and the men are above and women are below. What he's trying to do is put us on the biblical standing that we are equals in Christ. So what he says here is, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And this phrase, authority over, in the Greek, it's authenteo. Authenteo is a challenging word uh, because it means, uh, well, let me just read the actual definition. It means to usurp authority over, be an absolute master to. And this is what I would tell you. Um, the Bible would prohibit women to being absolute masters over men in the same way that the Bible would prohibit men of being the absolute masters over women. What we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is it says, hey, women, be submissive to your husband as the church is submitted to Christ. But guys, you have to love your wife sacrificially, right? So there's this idea that we each do our part and we each play our role and we sacrifice to, for each other and we submit to each other. And so there is not one is better than the other. Um, and so what we see here is this word, othenteo, that's used and it's challenging for interpreters and biblical scholars because this is the only place it's used in Scripture. And the challenge is uh, many people who are biblical scholars, they like to be able to cross-reference words. So they get a better understanding for a meaning of a word based on how many times it's used. So the more often it's used, the better context they have and the better they understand the word. And so the truth is, with a word like this that's used one time in Scripture, it's hard for them to pin down the exact meaning. And what is it really trying to communicate here? Uh, but one of the things I think we can see is... Um, that what Paul says is, I do not permit a, a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, it is not played out in the rest of his writings. We don't see that evident. Um, and so what happens is we've taken this literally. In fact, let me read the next verse to you. 1 Timothy 2.15 says this, Yet she, talking about woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Ladies, good news. What Jesus did on the cross, you don't even need that. All you got to do is have a baby. If you have a baby, you're going to heaven, right? Woohoo! That seems to be what the scripture says, right? If we look at it, she will be saved through childbearing. But <laughs> very few, and in fact, I'll say there are no Orthodox believers who would take this verse literally, right? But what happens is, we take this portion literally that says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And in fact, there are people that wouldn't take this literally who also don't take the passage above it that says women shouldn't braid their hair or wear gold or jewelry, literally. But we'll take this literally and say, nope, this is what it says. This is what it must mean. So we give grace to verses like this and go, okay, contextually, there's gotta be something different about this, right? And so what we have to do is apply the whole passage in this way. And we don't water down Scripture. But what we do is we attempt to have a good understanding for what Scripture is actually trying to say to us. Uh, so let me, let me move on. Because um, we're running out of time. Romans 16. Uh, your homework, <laughs> and i got to be honest with you. Sometimes I'll give you homework and it's like, hey, go read this week. Read Romans 16 this week. It's so boring. <laughs> I'm just telling you. You're going to read it and be like, why am I reading this? Um, this Romans 16, Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Roman church. And, uh, and what he does is, what he does in all of his letters, he gives shout outs at the end. He says, hey, make sure you tell so-and-so I said hello. Hey, uh, man, I love so-and-so. Tell them I said hi. Hey, greet them for me. And he'll go through this list. So in Romans chapter 16, there are 29 people that are named. So in the book of Romans, um, 
the church at Rome was not just a church that met in one building. They were a series of house churches that met all over. So we don't know exactly how many, but there were probably quite a few. And so when Paul is giving his shout outs in Romans 16, um, we, we, can, we can understand that he's probably giving shout outs to different church, church groups, different home house churches, uh, and different leaders in those churches. And so he, he names some people by name. He gives them some direct, you know, gives them a shout out. Hey, tell them I love them. Make sure you tell them I said hello, those kind of things. And, and of the 29 people that were named, um, they don't know for sure because some of the names are somewhat androgynous, but between eight and 10 of the people named are, are females, are women. Um, and so let me tell you about just a couple of the women that are named in Romans 16. The first I would tell you about is Prissa, and it's described as Prissa and Aquila. So we know that this is actually Priscilla, and it was shortened in Romans 16 here, but Priscilla and Aquila are important figures in the ministry of Paul throughout the New Testament. We know that, that they show up in Corinth with Paul. Uh, they minister under Paul. They're led by him. They're developed by him. Then they go with him to Ephesus. And when he leaves Ephesus, he actually installs them as ministers there. They are pastors in Ephesus. So Priscilla and Aquila, and the indication seems to be that they were co-pastors together, that they, they were co-laborers together in their ministry. Now, we don't know if she, if she was preaching or what, but what we know is she had a very significant role in the church. And not just that church, but the early church formation as we know it today. Um, there was another couple, Andronicus and Junia, that they were a missionary couple. Paul actually says that they were, they were uh, co-prisoners. They were prisoners with me. So what we can surmise is they were missionaries and they were arrested for their faith and for preaching the gospel and they were, they were, uh, they were imprisoned for that. Uh, what we also see is there's a word used to describe them that some people... Uh, interpret as apostles, and I think that's a, a healthy way of interpreting that. So there's a good chance that they were apostles, that they were witnesses to Christ, that they experienced um, his death, burial, and resurrection. They were part of that to some degree or another. And so they were important figures as well. And the last one I'll mention to you is a woman named Phoebe. And Phoebe was a, a deacon at the church in Sincrea. So Phoebe was the one who delivered the letter. And this isn't spelled out explicitly in Scripture, but this is really important. Uh, it is common, historically, for someone who is dispatched with a letter, especially to a group, to read the letter to the people that it was dispatched to. So in this context, Phoebe was given this letter to the church. She probably went to each house church and read it. And she just didn't deliver it like, this is for you, sign here, peace, we're out, like she would leave. She, she stayed after this journey, she would talk, and probably what happened is she would read the letter and then explain the letter. So people, after she read it, might go, well, wait, when he said, what does that mean? And she would go, okay, well, here's what he was talking about. And here's what he was, was trying to communicate here. And she would do this at the different churches she would go to. She would go to these different houses and communicate what Paul had written. And I don't know if you understand where we're going with this, but it sounds to me like a woman named Phoebe, who was a deacon at her church, was the first person to preach the book of Romans publicly on planet Earth. That she preached the book of Romans, and there's an excellent chance that she unpacked it for people as well. That she helped them understand, here's what Paul's trying to say. Here's what Paul's talking about. And again, the book of Romans is such an important book when it comes to our faith in the gospel that, that she is the one who was entrusted with this. Now, the question that was asked earlier was about 1 Timothy 3 as well. And 1 Timothy 3 deals with requirements for eldership and deacons in the church. So let me just speak to that real quickly. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. So it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So we use this word anyone with a male pronoun, Okay. Let me go on. It says, therefore, an overseer, and here it's talking about a pastor, must be above reproach the husband of one wife. It goes on with several other uh, requirements. We won't get into all that. So husband of one wife. And the argument goes, how can you be a husband of one wife if you are a, a woman? Therefore, you can't be a, a female pastor, period. So if, if we're going to interpret that strictly, then what we have to ask is, well, okay, what if you are a husband of one wife and your wife dies? 
then you're a husband of no wives. Or what if you've never been married and uh, are you disqualified from being a pastor because you're a guy who's never been married? Um, it goes on to say, uh, give instructions about your children and how your children should behave. So if that's the case, if you're required to have well-behaved children, uh, then what happens if they're not well-behaved? What happens, let's take it a step further, if you don't have kids? So if you're a married couple and the husband is godly, but you guys can't have kids for whatever reason, are you disqualified from being a pastor? And so we begin to ask these questions as we unpack this a little bit. But let me back up, because this is what it says. It says, remember, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it does not use the male word here in the Greek, which is A-N-E-R. It doesn't use that specifically. It uses the word tis, T-I-S, which literally means anyone. And it is common to use this word tis with the male pronoun he, that you use these things together commonly, regularly in the language. And so let me read, this is Jesus talking in John 6, 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, if I asked you, is that limited to men? No one would say yes. There's not a person here who would say, yes, salvation is limited to men only. And that is evidence of it in John 6, 51. But what we do is we take the same language in a different context and we go, see, this is men only. But it's the same word. It's the same language. And so what we have to understand is that we're going to apply this in the same way in both of these contexts. That it's not saying if anyone who is a man, it's saying if anyone, male or female, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So what we have to see is even this has to be looked at in the proper context. And another thing, if you go on down to verse 12 of 1 Timothy 3, it says the same thing about deacons. Deacons should be the husband of one wife. But again, it is clear from Romans 16, it spells it out that Phoebe was a deacon in the churches in Crea. A couple reasons I believe women should be pastors. Um, and I'll, I'll break these down very quickly for you. Uh, in John chapter 20, Jesus was arisen, and really the first thing I was going to mention to you is Romans 16. So second thing is John chapter 20, Jesus is risen. This is a seminal moment of Christian faith. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why we meet together, because Jesus didn't just, just die on the cross and was buried. He resurrected, right? So this is huge. This is so important. So in John chapter 20, what we see is um, on that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she gets to the tomb and the tomb is empty. She freaks out a little bit and she goes back to find Peter and John and they show up and they're going, oh my gosh, because they don't know if the body's been stolen, what's been going on. They're not sure, but Peter and John leave and they are marveling. They're, they can't believe what's going on. And she's standing there. I can imagine her with her her mouth agape, kind of dumbfounded, and an angel shows up. And she has this interaction with the angel of the Lord, and she's saying, where did you guys do with his body? And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus has this conversation with her. He says, no, 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 you can't touch me. Um, and they begin to talk, and they begin to have this conversation. And this is the paraphrase version. What he tells her is, you go tell people what you've seen here. The seminal moment of the Christian faith is when Jesus rises from the grave. This is what the gospel is all about. The good news that Jesus didn't just pay the sacrifice for our sins. He is alive and well today. This is the moment that brings us life, okay? And Jesus doesn't say, hey, Mary, I've got some really good things that people need to know about. Go get the guys so I can tell them about that. He says, Mary, you go tell people what I've done. You go tell people what you've seen. A woman was the first person to be told to go share the gospel. Mary is important because if you look back in uh, Luke chapter 10, it's a story we've talked about a lot here at Summit. Uh, you've got Martha in the kitchen. She's doing the work, the labor. She's, you know, she's hosting and Jesus is in the house, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's working, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and, and the, the story we've told is that Mary was the worker, and Mar, uh, Martha was the worker, and Mary was the worshiper. 
and we draw this line and go, one's bad and one's good. Let's all be worshipers. Okay, that's great. I'm not going to discount that. And, and we say that Martha was frustrated with Mary because Martha was doing all the work. And we have this image of Mary as if she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's just enthralled by Jesus, just enraptured by him, and she's looking at, up at him like doe eyes, like, <sighs> right? I don't believe that was the case. So culturally, it would have been appropriate in a setting like that for the women, like I said earlier, who were largely relocated to domestic work, for the women to be in the kitchen and the men to be sitting around with Jesus. So the rabbi would have been sitting center stage and all the other people would have been around him listening to him teach. And they weren't there for entertainment purposes. They were there because they wanted to emulate his life. They were there because they said, I want to be like you. I want to be a rabbi like you are a rabbi. I want to learn from you so that I can do what you're doing. This was a male-dominated space. And I believe that what happened is Mary kind of forced her way into this male-dominated space. And Jesus didn't turn her away. And Martha, yes, she was probably frustrated because she needed to get some help with work getting done, but I think she might have been a little frustrated because she was saying, wait, 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 Mary, you are ignoring cultural norms. You are ignoring what we're supposed to do, and you're doing something that's out of bounds. You're coloring outside the lines. You are not supposed to be there. So get back in here where you belong. And yet Jesus says she's chose the greater matter. She understands what she really needs to be doing. Jesus signs off on what she's doing. What we see here is this, this liberating moment that Jesus engages women in ministry. I didn't say this in the other services. <laughs> I don't know if I get in trouble for this. I've had people say, did you know Jesus picked 12 male disciples? Shouldn't that tell you something? Do you know what happened when Jesus was crucified? All 12 of the male disciples abandoned him. Do you know who stuck around? The women. <laughs> so we should not take this as an endorsement that men are and women aren't or anything like that. In fact, let me get to my last verse, Galatians 3, 28. Uh, we walked through this verse a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, as we were unpacking some of the civil unrest in our nation between ethnicities and, and social groups. But let me walk through this passage with you. Paul says to the Galatian church in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I love this. I will tell you, though, if I was going to help Paul out, because sometimes preachers need help, and so if I was going to help Paul out, I'd say, Paul, I think you could say this a little better. How about if you said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. That just flows better. The symmetry's a little better. Right? It just makes more sense, Paul, so... Maybe next time. Just giving you a tip, a pointer. But Paul doesn't need my help. Did you know that? Paul knows what he's doing. The reason I think this is a good translation is because what it looks like is happening for you are all one in Christ. This ties this all together, this whole idea. But this line, there is no male and female, is specific. It's actually quoting Genesis 127. Genesis 127, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is what I want you to understand. We are image bearers of God. And the, as, as an image bearer of God, um, we think it's how we look, that we are image bearers, it's our image, it's no. As an image bearer of God, it has nothing to do with our gender. Because animals have gender as well. They are not the image bearers of God. We are. So what it says is there is something transcendent about us, about who God made us to be, that we have his fingerprints all over us and it has nothing to do with our gender. So when we look at this verse, I, I think the question is, what if this verse is not just about salvation? Because it's talked about in the context of salvation. 
In fact, if you look at verse 27, the verse right before it, it talks about how we've been baptized in Christ and there's one baptism in Christ. So if we understand it that way, we have to understand we are one in Christ. See, the Jews, they had this, this covenant with God and they were marked in covenant by circumcision. So the men could be circumcised, but the women could not. But what Paul's saying is, now in this new covenant, there's one baptism. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, because in this one baptism, there's equal footing in Christ. We are one in him. What he's saying is, men and, Jew, uh, men and women, Jew and Greek, slave and free, we're equally saved and equally justified because of what Christ has done on the cross. Paul understood what he was saying here in Galatians 3.28. Uh, he was raised Jewish. He was a Roman citizen, but he was Jewish by heritage. And he understood Jewish law um, because that's what God had saved him out of. And there's a prayer to this day, there's a prayer in the synagogue prayer book that Jewish men will read. And it reads something like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. We're one in Christ Jesus. This is what I want you to know today. Salvation is not reserved for men. And just like salvation is not reserved for men, a call to ministry is not reserved for men. I believe that every person in this place, every person watching online, if you are a follower of Jesus, there is a purpose and a plan for your life that God is inviting you to be part of his plan to reach humanity, to reach this world for his cause. That, that Jesus didn't die on a cross and he wasn't raised three days later just so you could go to heaven. I believe God is inviting you today and he's saying no matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your gender is, if you are mine, if you're in Christ, you are invited into his plans for planet earth. And that's what I want to invite you into today. That's what I want to let you know. You're a part of this today. You've got a right, but you've got a responsibility as well. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you so much that you love us. Lord, thank you that you have a purpose and plan for us. Thank you that, God, you wanna use us, you invite us into your plan for the human race. God, I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly. God, help us not be complacent, not be satisfied just going to heaven, just going through the motions. But God, I pray that you would put a deep desire in us today to reach the one who is lost, to speak life into those who are hurting and dying. So God, use us today. In spite of the labels that have been applied to us, in spite of whatever shortcomings we think we have, God, help us see that each of us can be used in the hands of the master today. God, I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that have never surrendered their lives to you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them, help them see the beauty of the cross. Help them see the beauty of what you've done. Help them see how incredible you are. And I pray that that would make the difference. So God, have your way with us over these next few moments. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. If you're here today and you'd say to me, Mel, I'm not really serving God, but I know I need to be. I'm not really walking with Christ. I've never really surrendered my life to Christ, but I know I need to. If that's you, I'm gonna say a prayer for you as we close out in just a moment. And if you wanna be included in that prayer, I want you to just let me know. And you can do that by just slipping your hand up real high where I can see it, and you can put it right back down. If you say, Mel, include me in this final prayer. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life today. If that's you, let me know. Slip your hand up real high. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Mel, 
you know what, um, I'm a believer, I'm going to heaven, but the truth is I've never really engaged in my purpose and my calling. And I know that I'm called, I know I'm supposed to be doing something for God's glory, I just don't know what it is and I need God to help me see that and to do that. If that's you and you want me to pray for you, I'd love for you to slip your hand up where I can pray for you today. Yeah, 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 a lot of hands, a lot of hands. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you love us and I'm grateful that even though you don't need us, you choose to use us. So God, I pray for those that responded today and say, that's me. I wanna be used in God's service for his glory. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see opportunities. God, give us hearts that will take those chances and take those opportunities. God, give us the discipline to walk through the open doors as they're opened up. Lord, I pray that you take away fear from our hearts. Lord, anxiety about stepping into something new and different. And God, I pray as you do, we would be released in you like never before. That God, you would unleash us on our communities, on our families, on our neighborhoods, on our schools. God, in the place that you have planted us, God, I pray that we would reach people and speak life into people who desperately need it. So God, help us not be complacent in just getting by and just going through the motions, but help us see that there's a calling on each of us as believers. So help us engage that calling. Help us to go deeper in you. God, we love you. We thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you would like prayer today, um, we are not doing in-person prayer, but prayer continues on. So if you need prayer today for any reason at all, I would encourage you, you can do one of two things. If you're here in the room, you can fill out a prayer card that's in the seat back in front of you. Or if you'd like, uh, you can simply email your prayer need to prayer at summitpa.church. So if you're watching online, you can either email us your prayer need, or if you'd like, if you're watching from our online uh, church online platform, simply hit the live prayer button, and one of our hosts are gonna pray with you right now uh, in this moment. They would love to agree with you in prayer. So hit that button and let them connect with you in prayer this morning. So let us know about your prayer needs. Our staff, our prayer team, our prayer chain will all be engaged praying for your needs. So thank you for praying with us today and for being here today and worshiping with us. If, um, if you've got people in your life that need to hear some of these messages we'll be talking about over the next few weeks, invite them. If you've got people in your life that maybe have been hurt by church or disenfranchised by church or uh, disappointed, invite them over the next few weeks and let's see what God will do. If you'd like to ask questions, just simply text Asking for to the number 94,000, you can ask your question and it might show up in the next couple weeks. So thank you for being here today. Guys, I tell you often, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.